Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. This is the largest tuna fishery in the world. Around 30% of global tuna supplies from our members' waters. The tuna industry and its role in the Pacific region is being discussed this week in Vietnam. Also, Pacific Island countries will be at the forefront of disposal. Activists and academics join up to fight plans of nuclear dumping into the Pacific, and later on... I'd be honoured to sing this on behalf of every single person, Samoan and Samoan supporter. We tell our with Aivale Cole, who sang the Samoan National Anthem for the Rugby League World Cup Final. The future of the world's largest tuna industry is being discussed in Vietnam this week. The official opening ceremony of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission took place this morning in Da Nang. More widely known as the Pacific Tuna Commission, it brings together Pacific Islands forum countries to flesh out a myriad of management and regulatory issues concerning the fishery and the people who work in it. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with the director of the Pacific Islands Forum Fisheries Agency, Manu Matsavai Tupo Rusin, ahead of the opening and began by asking her why tuna is important for Pacific countries. It's important for food security. It's important for employment opportunity. And also so many of our governments depend on it for a source of revenue that can help with development such as much needed infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roads. Also, this is the largest tuna fishery in the world around 30% of global tuna supplies from our members' waters. And it's the healthiest tuna fishery in the world. It's the only region where all four major tuna stocks are biologically healthy. And we're not saying that to boast. We're not being complacent. There's always work to ensure that we continue to sustain these resources, protect these resources, so that our people can continue to benefit from these resources. And the credit for this work to date, the status of the stock, the value of the stock and its protection is down to our members and their hard work and the robust measures they put in place uh, to manage and protect the fishery. Now, obviously, first in-person meeting, um, hybrid in-person virtual meeting since COVID, quite a lot of issues that have been sort of on hold, unable to be dealt with. Um, talk us through some of the big issues going into this uh, Pacific Tuna Commission or WCPF meeting. You're absolutely right. First physical meeting in three years, and there's just so much excitement about coming together in person to uh, in, in such a long time. And you're also right in saying that when it comes to some of our more complex issues, that we've had to hold them over. Uh, until we could discuss it more robustly in person. We all recognize that we've all been able to track significant work during the COVID period. And again, you know, the credit down to the membership, not just the FFA membership, but also other commission members, their spirit of cooperation on virtual platforms, and also the leadership of the chair, Riley Kemp, which has been valuable. And so talking through some of the ticket items that our members are looking for in this in-person meeting. At the outset, looking to adopt a managed procedure for skipjack tuna and designed to improve decision-making by specifying predetermined levels of fishing of the stock based on the performance of the fishery. 
And so this will better account for uncertainty. It's an important step in ensuring the effective management and sustainable use of this, and also meeting the interests of global markets in sourcing sustainable tuna products. That's one um, key area of focus for our membership. I'll mention uh, some other areas, and this is in terms of the area of long-term sustainability and effective management of the resources. We're also looking to include a provision related to harvest strategy to ensure our fisheries retain their MSC certification, looking to adopt a strengthened South Pacific swordfish measure, and also adopt focused processes for reviewing our tropical tuna measure and also the management of our South Pacific albacore, improvement of that management. When we think of another key area of focus for our membership, a general area going into this commission meeting, it's around the tools to protect the fishery. So big one for our members is electronic reporting, looking to require members to routinely report their high seas catch and effort data through electronic reporting, recognizing that this tool provides a more timely and more accurate way to provide critical information. Another important tool to protect the fishery is electronic monitoring. So really those investments in technology and stepping up uh, and also drawing on a lot of experience from some of our members in this space. Our members have adopted electronic monitoring standards and specifications and procedures. And what we've done is submitted this to the commission as an information paper to help guide the commission's own adoption of their EMSSPs. And then the, the last area in terms of the tools to protect the fishery, there is a compliance monitoring scheme uh, that is implemented by the commission and we're always looking for ways to review and enhance that and ensure that it's fair and that it's efficient and effective. And this is in terms of ensuring compliance with the obligations of the commission. The last area, Koroi, that I'd like to just highlight is the human side to our work and always front of mind our people. And under this, I'll highlight two areas that our members are, are taking to this commission. It's to continue progress, to develop an effective measure for improving labor standards for crew. And the other is to safely redeploy our observers from 1 January 2023. Calls are growing for Japan's government to halt the dumping of nuclear waste from Tokyo Electric Power Company's damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants into the Pacific Ocean. It's planned to start next year and continue for 30 years. A statement of solidarity is being drafted against it following the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania conference, which was held in Dunedin, New Zealand, during the weekend. Lydia Lewis was there. 2023 has been dubbed a crucial year for the health of the ocean. At least 800,000 tonnes of radioactive wastewater is scheduled to be dumped into the Pacific Ocean over 30 years from early next year. We understand, we respect, this is within Japan's jurisdiction. The ocean is not just a stagnant continent. It's not terrestrial, it's a liquid continent. And Pacific Island countries will be at the forefront of disposal. International law expert Duncan Curry told the conference Japan has not considered the impacts or conducted baseline studies. Completely unacceptable. He says modelling suggests the waste will travel north to Korea, China and then the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau. The countries must take all measures necessary to ensure that pollution arising from incidents or activities within their jurisdictional control 
do not spread beyond the areas where they exercise sovereign rights. So that, frankly, is an open and shut case, really. It's without a shadow of a doubt that is Japan releasing radiation within its own waters, which will necessarily reach international waters and waters of, of other countries. He says Japan has other options, like storing the waste on land, which is costly. But countries need to take a stand now. Any country, any Pacific country, Korea, China, could take a case against Japan and the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, demanding that an injunction, or what are called provisional measures in international law, be exercised. The newly elected Vanuatu Climate Minister, Ralph Reganvanu, says he is against it as a member of the Pacific Islands Forum, which has expressed its opposition to the dumping. Pacific leaders at the conference are calling on the New Zealand government to join the fight. Bede Radule is from the Federated States of Micronesia and is now based in Fiji. Um, when you go out on the lagoon in the Marshall Islands, it's so beautiful and blue and clear and pristine and like being with our family and fishing and um, swimming and diving it's just like the most happiest. She says hearing about Japan's plans and the potential impacts has been re-traumatizing as Marshall Islands residents are still facing the impacts of nuclear testing by the United States. It's re-traumatizing. We know a lot of people that passed away from cancer. It's like it won't stop. Like our grandparents say, we're so tired of going to funeral, funeral, funeral. She believes it is New Zealand that has a duty to take action instead of leaving it up to small island nations. I really feel for my nation's leaders. They're taking on so much. They have so much on their shoulders and to be constantly fighting for survival means we don't have time to focus on our energy on our people and developing our people. So I think a nation like New Zealand should take the lead on Fukushima waste dumping issue. Another Pacific youth leader, Joey Tao, says time and time again, it is small Pacific islands taking on these battles. He is calling on New Zealand to support this call if it sees itself as part of this blue continent. Wellington-born Samoan opera singer Aivale Cole had the honour of singing the Samoan National Anthem at the Rugby League World Cup Final at Old Trafford Stadium on November 19th. The 2009 Lexus SongQuest winner was asked if she wanted to sing the anthem only a few hours before the game kicked off. She was one of few supporters who attended the semi-final in which Tosa Moore pulled off its legendary 27-26 victory over England. Final Funua spoke with Aivale Cole about her experience. Could you describe the moment um, you got offered to do the national anthem for Tor Samoa? It was um, a real honour to be asked, um, and at, at really short notice as well. So I, I basically bought my ticket to go and be a spectator. I bought my train ticket and my and my a, a ticket, a good seat, so that I could really have a good view of the game and to support the boys. So um, that was my um, reason for travelling there. Um, but when I arrived, my, I got off my train literally uh, at 10, 10 a.m. in the morning, and then 10 minutes later, my, my phone rang. Um, and it was uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of Samoa 
um, to Allah, bless him, he, he gave me a call. And, um, yeah, and then I got to, and then we got chatting, and then he asked me if I would, um, would be able to, to sing the national anthem, which, of course, is a huge honour. Um, and I have to say, when I when I said yes, I've, I, I've been looking at all the videos from my friends back at home who've been doing the parades, and my own family in Perth have been joining the parade, um, just celebrating them and buying their flags and just having a massive celebration. It's been so wonderful to see so how how we've come together. And even here in London, like I, at the semi-finals, I, I met um, people that I've never, you know, that are someone that are living here and I've never met. So it was so nice to have that sort of unity. So, of course, when, <coughs> excuse me, when being offered um, the, the opportunity to, to sing the national anthem, I thought of everyone, if you know what I mean. You know, I thought I'd love, I'd be honoured to sing this on behalf of every single person, someone and someone supporter who can't make it to Old Trafford. Um, I will sing it on behalf of every single person. So yeah, it was a really, it was a huge honour, and and I said I went for it for everybody. So and for the boys, of course. So yeah, it was a real honour. And could you describe? What it was like um, singing the national anthem at that that game? Um, it's all. Oh, it's it is. It, it, you just sing it with so much pride, being someone. Um, and of course, you know, you're singing words like "Samoa, arise and wave your flag." You know, it, it is a moment that the whole world, um, you know, was singing that that we're, we're we're flying our flags with such pride all around the globe. Um, and to say those words and to remind everyone that we should be proud how amazing we've gotten this far. Those boys have, have journeyed up to that moment is uh, is history. And everyone is, is so happy and proud to have been a part of that history, to be alive at a time like that when the Samoa has just, you know, just really come through so strongly um, with confidence um, and pride. So, yeah, it was... It was an amazing honour. Um, I don't get nervous with things like this. I just, especially with something like this, it's more just so proud to represent our country. What was it like? Because um, you're right in England where the tournament was is happening. Mm. What was it like when Samoa beat England in that semi-final? Uh, like, how did the Samoan community react there? Oh, my gosh. We went nuts. Okay, I don't know if you've seen my social media, but there is a video where we go absolutely nuts in the stadium. Um, we we were there was only like in our section of the stadium, there was literally just eight of us someone flying the flag, and the rest were English. So we were like eight salmon needles in a massive English haystack, if you know what I mean. But we were just screaming and shouting, you know, encouraging the boys because we were up quite close to the field. So we knew our time to, to say something was when the English were really quiet and then we cheered and we shouted because we thought that's the only time they ever going to hear us because we can't really be heard when the English shout. So, yeah, it was amazing. And 
what was it like um, after the game? It must have been really sad for all the English fans um, not to have you it. Know what? I have to say, the English fans were so lovely. They were like congratulating us. They were like, well done, see you at the finals. Um, you know, I mean, of course, there's a couple of super fans that were like so angry and stuff. Um, but you know what? A majority were so happy for us. So it was really lovely, actually, afterwards. Really lovely, yeah. What's the island community like there in England? Is it tight-knit? Is, it, um, is there a lot of islanders there in London? There are a lot of islanders here. Yes, there are. Um, and I know quite a few. And I know there are some that are quite quiet behind the scenes. So, you know, it's always nice to meet new islanders that are, that are living here in London and around Europe as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we, but we have an arts collective here, um, which was run by my cousin, Silinga Sani Muliao Masiali, called Nafa Arts Collective. And then he's been um, the founder um, and artistic director for that for over a decade. Um, so yeah, we're continuing um, doing Nafa projects, which is all classical music, arts, poetry um, and it's all showcasing Pacific Islanders, Pacific work, um, Western operas that are set in the Pacific. So yeah, yeah, we, we're sort of um, trying to put our mark um, here in London and, and people find it really fascinating to, to, to come and watch or be a part of um, those projects. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHa, or Apple Podcast. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Pavitai te le lava, Manuele Paul.